Well, good morning. Last week we uh, ended off the message with Romans chapter 15, verse 13. And I, I sent you out with that text, and I want to begin this morning with that very same verse from Romans 15, verse 13, but I want to read it from the message. And here's what it says, Oh, may the God of green hope fill you up with joy, fill you up with peace, so that your believing lives filled with the life-giving energy of the Holy Spirit will brim over with hope. That's my prayer. So Lord, we, uh, we thank you for this incredible truth, this incredible prayer, this promise. And uh, I pray, Lord, that even as we dive into your word this morning and as we allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us and lead us, that you would fill us with hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I love in that uh, translation how it uses the language of this green hope, and it's this imagery of growth and of something that is alive, something that's not dead, something that is growing. And so that imagery is what I want to have in front of us And as, as we talk about hope again today from the book of Nehemiah. Because as we talked about last week, and we know intuitively in our hearts, hope matters. And uh, one of the thoughts that I've had thinking through this week is this, that to have faith is to be future-oriented, and to be future-oriented is to have hope. I want to talk about the correlation of these things today and how uh, faith and hope are so connected, and they have a future orientation. Because we have been created as people to be future-oriented. It says in the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer of Ecclesiastes says that God has set eternity in the hearts of man. And so there is within us, there is this desire, this longing for something of eternity. There's this longing of what lies ahead. In Jeremiah 29, there's that phrase that many of us know about a hope and a future. And if you were here last week, we stepped into that text specifically as part of the context of Nehemiah and read it in its context of actual exile and how Jeremiah is speaking to these people in exile and saying, even though you're in exile for 70 years, God still has not forgotten you and God has a plan for you and there is a hope and a future for you. And so we see that future orientation in that way as well. Uh, John Ortberg, who many of you are familiar with, a pastor and a writer, uh, he wrote a book called Soul Care. And one of the phrases that sticks out for me in that book, in one of the chapters, is he says, the soul needs a future. Because it's, it's part of how God has created us and wired us, is that within our soul, we need a future. It, it needs something to look forward to. It needs something that draws us forward in order for us to survive and to thrive. Because without a sense of future we lose sight of hope very quickly. It's the main reason that a person leaves a relationship, a career, or a home, or something like that. We, we will say things and we come to the place where we say, well, there's no future in it. And so we abandon it, whatever it is. And so we need to have a future orientation. We need to have a view to the future and something that is drawing us forward. And that is why hope is so critical. And so we need a tenacious future orientation. And the book of Nehemiah is a book that is about many things, again, as we'll look at in just a minute, but it's about building on hope. And that's what Nehemiah is doing with the people, is he's helping them have a future orientation and that God would draw them forward. Well, last week, I, uh, 
It said that in its simplest form that the book of Ezra is about the rebuilding of the temple. And if actually, if you read that book, Ezra himself had very little to do with the rebuilding of the temple, but in that book that has his name on it, he was very instrumental in terms of the spiritual renewal that happened at that time. But Ezra is about the rebuilding of the temple. And then Nehemiah, the book that comes right after it, uh, is about rebuilding of the wall. Nehemiah had a very direct hand in this, and we'll, we'll see that as we go along in this series. But these two books, again, really go hand in hand. They're like two chapters of the same book. And so at times, we're going to be going back and forth and referring back to Ezra and again today to understand more about uh, this story. So these stories are about rebuilding these physical structures. And again, Nehemiah about, about the wall. Um, I, I found it so interesting how we've been swamped in the news uh, lately about the U.S.-Mexican border wall, right? I mean, that, like you can't get away from it. It's everywhere. And it's all over the place. And you would think that that was almost strategic. Bruce, boy, are you ever smart, you know, lining that up at the same time. Well, as if I had anything to do with that. Uh, but it's just interesting. I mean, when we kind of landed this series many months ago, we had no idea that this would be so front and center for everybody. But this pervasive talk about a wall, always about a wall, about a wall. And I will resist the urge to make bad jokes or parallels to that. But I just find it interesting that it is happening simultaneous as we talk about this series. And what strikes me, even in that story, is that walls mean things, right? Walls symbolize things. Walls have deep meanings for people that people are struggling with and wrestling with and have very different views about what a wall means. And so even in Nehemiah, walls mean things. It has an identity for the people, as we talked about last week. It not only gives uh, kind of a framework for a city and protects a city, but it gives a strategic identity for the people uh, as well. So Nehemiah is about many things. Nehemiah has often been used as a resource uh, for leadership. Because Nehemiah is a great book on leadership, and you can approach it from that side of things and draw and pull all kinds of, of great lessons and uh, insights in terms of le- uh, Nehemiah's leadership uh, within the book. But for me, I, I guess I land and I want to just have us focus throughout this series on it is a people of God building on hope. It's gritty and it's a tenacious hope and it's a hope that is filled literally with blood, sweat, and tears. It's a hope that doesn't come easy. It's a hope that has much passion behind it. It's a hope that is filled with much pain, but it's intentional and it's strategic. And so last week, again, we looked at the backstory of Nehemiah. Who are these people? Who are these people of Judah that are uh, returning from exile? Why did they go into exile? What was it that caused that? And, and what happened of the backstory? And we, we took a fair bit of time looking at that. We focused on chapter 1 and the prayer and the anguish that we see in Nehemiah in chapter 1 of his prayer on behalf of the people and the anguish and the emotion that he felt for the brokenness of the people. And the reality that there was rubble in their lives, obviously the physical rubble, but Nehemiah was more concerned about the spiritual rubble that was there in their lives and the rebuilding that needed to take place. And, And so we identify with that. For every one of us, we know and experience and feel to some level the rubble that is in our own lives that needs rebuilding. And so there are parallels that we can understand and that we can look at. So this week, I want us to move and to shift from the prayer and the anguish of chapter 1 and move into chapter 2 and 3 
uh, into the, the action that Nehemiah steps into and the power of vision and strategy to accomplish a significant goal, to build hope again. Nehemiah went from the splendor of Susa to the brokenness of Jerusalem. He was a cupbearer to the king in the inner court of the king, had a very good life in a very prosperous place, and we can only imagine the uh, comforts that he had, and yet felt this conviction, this angst, this call to action, and so he went to his broken people and this broken city of Jerusalem, and it changed him. And he was compelled to speak hope into these people and to lead them in a rebuilding project to rebuild hope. It's a a well-known quote by Napoleon that says, a leader is a dealer of hope. And Nehemiah was very skilled at that. We'll see some of that today in terms of how he did that. But let's return to the story and and look at some of the excerpts from Nehemiah chapter 2 as we ended off in chapter 1 last week. And I want to just read verses 1 and 2 to begin with. I'm not going to read all of chapter 2 and chapter 3 uh, today. Uh, you would get overwhelmed, as would I, with some of that. But we'll, we'll touch on certain aspects of that. So Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Early the following spring, in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. And so the king asked me, Why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified, he says. Now let's stop there for a minute, and we recognize the fact that that this is now many months later. It says early in the following spring. So what we read in chapter 1, where Nehemiah, he prays and he fasts, he gets this report from his friends about what's going on back in Jerusalem. He's broken for the people of Jerusalem and what's happening there. He spends time in prayer and fasting and in anguish, and he cries out to God. And then now this is actually many months later. So we don't know what happened in the meantime. Obviously, he, he was spending time reflecting on this and what God was stirring in his heart. He was probably starting to put some plans together and to develop an action plan of, okay, what exactly am I going to ask the king? I need to be prepared. And so he was probably working through all that detail, praying through all that detail. We don't know that, but we see now that it's many months later, and now he finally asked the king, but it's because the king sees what's written all over his face. And the king notices because they are together every day and he notices, okay, something's off. What's wrong? What's going on? And then Nehemiah wants to stir up this conviction and it says that he was terrified. Interesting. Why was he terrified? King Artaxerxes, we see in Ezra, if you go back to that story, had considerable contact with both the temple and also the building of the wall. And we see in Ezra chapter 4, if you flip back to the previous book, that there was an experience where Ezra, uh, or in, recorded in Ezra, where King Artaxerxes was actually involved in this project of the temple. But it seemed to imply that the project was bigger than the temple and actually was expanding to the wall project as well. And Ezra, or in Ezra, we see the record of, of Artaxerxes is getting pressure, and he's getting pressure to shut this project down from people that are around there. So here's some of what we read in Ezra chapter 4, verse 11 uh, to 13. It says, To King Art, from your loyal subjects in the province west of Euphrates River, 
The king should know that the Jews who came here to Jerusalem from Babylon are rebuilding this rebellious and evil city. They have already laid the foundation and will soon finish its walls. Interesting. They're already starting on the wall project. And the king should know that if the city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, it will be much to your disadvantage, for the Jews will then refuse to pay their tribute, customs, and tolls to you. So here these people are making a case to the king and saying, look, here's a project that's going on. You've got a bunch of rebels at hand here. You've got to take care of this. So then what happens if you go to the end of that chapter, in verse 24, uh, King Art shuts it down and says, so the work on the temple of God in Jerusalem had stopped. And it remained at a standstill until the second year of the king of Darius, the reign of king of Darius of Persia. And so here we see that King Art had been involved in this project before. And you wonder, okay, how much did Nehemiah know about this? Because here he is 13 years later and he's coming back to the king and he's saying, okay, this is what's stirring in my heart is to continue the wall project and actually keep building on the wall. But he knows that this has already been shut down once. And he knows, or he doesn't know, how did the king view that? Was it a rebel group that he, sort of like this uh, insurrection that he had to shut down? And so is he starting another one as being seen as a rebel force? I don't know. But you wonder, is that partly why he has such fear? And so then, Nehemiah, he shares his heart. And as you continue to read in chapter 2, and we won't read through all of it, but you see that Nehemiah, he makes his big request in fear and trembling. And after a few questions, the king grants him permission. And then Nehemiah asks even some more requests besides just going to Jerusalem. He asks for letters for safe travel. He asks for letters for lumber supplies. He's smart and strategic. He's asking for political logistics to find favor and safe passage. He's asking for supply logistics. And he's asking for personal logistics. He's saying, can I also have some lumber to build a home there because I'm going to need a place to stay. And the king grants him his wish. And as you continue to read in in Nehemiah 2, you see that starting in verse 9 and and following, he, he actually encounters some opposition. Nehemiah does too, similar to what we see recorded in Ezra. We're going to dive into that next week about the opposition that is faced and some of the implications of that. But just know that already Nehemiah is finding opposition with certain individuals. And so they are pushing back again on the project that God has put in his heart. But he arrives in Jerusalem. And then it says in Nehemiah 2.11, So I arrived in Jerusalem, three days, and three days later I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans that God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey that I was riding. And after dark, I went out through the valley gate, past the jackal's well, and over to the dung gate to inspect the broken walls and the burned gates. And so Nehemiah is a very strategic leader. He's there for a few days, getting to know the lay of the land, and he goes out at night, and he takes just a few people with him. He hasn't really told anybody there what he's there for, and he just starts to inspect the damage. And he says, I want to know what I'm getting into here. I want to know what actually is is going on. I've heard these other reports of what people have said, but I want to see it for myself. And so he does. He goes. And then we see in verse 17, he comes to the city officials and he starts to tell them and to cast vision for this project. And he says to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. What do they say? They rally together and they say, absolutely, let's do it. Let's build the wall. 
And I don't know what kind of rally this was. I mean, it might have been some, like a political rally where everybody's cheering and, you know, cheering him on. I, I have no idea. But what we see recorded here is that he casts some kind of compelling vision to these leaders of Jerusalem, and they respond. They say, we get it. We affirm that. Let's go. And so the project begins. And so they rebuild. And then you go into chapter 3. And uh, I, I will save you the pain of reading through chapter 3 with the impossible names that you and I can't pronounce. But I would encourage you to read through it. And I want to touch on a few things of it. And I will just give you a taste of it. It starts off in verse 1. Then Eli- Eliashib, see the first name that you can't pronounce, the high priest and the other priest started to rebuild at the Sheep Gate. And they dedicated it and set, its, set up its doors, building the wall as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated and then the Tower of Hananel. And then people from beyond, from the town of Jericho, worked next to them, and beyond them was Zakur, the son of Imri, and on and on it goes. And it starts to list Nehemiah. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, remember. And he takes time to write down all the names of the people and also the section of the wall that they built. And so there's this strategy that's unfolding, and there's an incredible plan that's in place because everybody's got a section to do. And it records they started from here and they did to there. And then these people took it from there and they went to the next place. And these people took it from there. And all of these people are like shoulder to shoulder working on this wall and doing their part. So first of all, we see that this is organized and strategic. It's not some haphazard kind of plan, but that Nehemiah has put in place some kind of plan that everybody is going to do a portion of the work. It's remarkable. We also see that there are people of all kinds of backgrounds. And I would encourage you to to read through the list and to see some of the backgrounds. But you have priests and Levites and temple servants and rulers and administrators. You have goldsmiths. You have perfume makers. You have other merchants. You have people of all manner of occupation. It's all hands on deck. Everybody's on this project, not just the construction workers. It's like everybody, come and join in this project. We need all of you, including there is a man who presumably didn't have any sons who's Daughters joined in and built right alongside him. I particularly like that part. That's in verse 12. So here's this man. He's got his daughters, and they're all building the wall together, and they're doing it right in front of their house. And and it's just this fascinating story of just everybody joining in. It's also interesting is that it wasn't really about their gifts. I mean, what's a perfume maker going to do in building a wall? Like, Like, what do you know about building a wall? What does a goldsmith know about building a wall? What does Nehemiah know about building a wall? And yet all of these people are called to almost set aside their gifts, set aside their occupations, and to do the work that God was calling them to do. As we talked about last week, Nehemiah probably had the, only the finest dress, manicured beard, manicured and soft hands, And now he's a construction foreman. It's quite remarkable that these people just embarked on this project and you wonder, what did they know? It reminds me of years ago when I was living in Rostern and there was this group of young people traveling across the country and they were helping with different projects and they were these well-intentioned, great workers and they were working hard at different places across the country and the building that they were working on in in Rostern, they had to reshingle the roof And so they were all full of zeal, and so they had a whole bunch of youth, so they started going, and they thought, well, it'll be a lot faster if we have one group start at the top of the roof and one group start at the bottom of the roof. We'll just meet in the middle. 
See, some of you know construction. That doesn't work really well. Or I think of my brother Brian. In, sorry, he probably listens to these. No, I don't think he listens to these once in a while, so I'll pick on him. But I have, there's five boys in my family. We all have different levels of skill in different things. Brian is a really smart guy. He's a lawyer. Uh, he's a very good critical thinker. He's got a great sense of humor, but he is a brutal builder. He built a picnic table once, and we mocked him for years on that. I mean, you would sit on it, and it was like a kid's seesaw, where one person would sit on one side, and it would kind of do this. There was nothing level or square, and nor, I think, did it last more than months. Like, it was so bad. So we just agreed that he would just be the social convener whenever we do projects together as a family. But people of all skills or lack of just came and participated and said, let's do this thing. And it was a remarkable project that they embarked on. The other thing that's interesting is when you read this, you'll see a phrase over and over again that comes through that they repaired the section in front of their home. They repaired the section in front of their home. They repaired the section across from their home. And you have this picture, this powerful picture of the rebuilding that needs to start at home. Start right in your own backyard. Start right where you live. Right with the people around you that matter most. It was really personal. And so we have this personal and powerful detail about the builders of the wall and the projects that they embarked on and how they went about doing it. And I wonder, you know, why did Nehemiah take such time and detail to write down all the names and all the meticulous detail? I mean, he was a very significant manager, but I, I wonder if it wasn't partly to make it personal for people so that they could say, hey, years later, tell their children and their grandchildren when they walk past that section of the wall, and they could say, hey, look at that. Do you see that section? I built that. I was part of that. And they could all kind of point back to their contribution to this incredible project. And that we might be able to do the same things where we are rebuilding in our lives and we are doing the work in our lives that we too could actually point and say, hey, I was a part of that in the kingdom of God. Part of building hope is building community. Because I think hope is found in community and it's sometimes hard to have hope when we're alone. And I think one of the greatest schemes of the enemy is to make us believe that we are alone. That nobody understands us, that nobody's been through our story, that nobody gets what we're going through. And so the enemy just wants us to believe that we're alone. And part of building hope is being really intentional about community. Which is why in our discipleship steps, one of the first ones we talk about is create community. Because it's so important in discipleship of actually being in community. And there are intentional things that you can do to create community. There are also intentional things that you can do to break community or to isolate yourself from community. And you know that. And so building community is so important in creating hope. I was at the men's ministry last night and that was here in the lounge and just watching dozens and dozens of men and being a part of a group of men who are hearing the Word of God, uh, praying through the Word of God, encouraging one another, being challenged about how do we do this work of building spiritual lives and spiritual homes shoulder to shoulder? How do we do that together? Where everyone does their part. We all come with feeling inadequate. We all come with feeling like we don't have our act together. Or we're not good enough to do this. But just like in the story of Nehemiah, you may not have the skills, just pitch in and just start. 
Community is a byproduct of a common demanding task. We've talked about that here in our church a lot, which is why we say to our small groups, you need to be involved in something that is outside of yourselves in terms of serving others. Because that's actually what builds community more than even having pie and coffee. When you're actually involved in a common demanding task that you actually are outside of your comfort zone, doing something for the kingdom of God where your sleeves are rolled up and your hands are getting dirty and you're doing something in God's kingdom, it builds community like nothing else. And so Nehemiah's project, probably not, maybe not so intentionally, I don't know, but it was building community and it was knitting the hearts of these people together. And so I want us to to see and understand the importance of vision and strategy in what Nehemiah is doing. And sometimes in the work of the church, people imply or they say outright, I've, I've heard it at different times, that there's really no place for vision or for strategy in God's work. That somehow to be strategic or intentional is unspiritual. And we sort of create this false dichotomy that there's sort of, there's prayer and spiritual things that we do, and then there's also planning, planning and like setting out clear objectives and having goals in mind. That somehow these are opposed to each other, which is so not true. And yet we see in God's kingdom, not only in this story, but as you go into the New Testament, there are many stories where Jesus is very strategic and very intentional and how these two always go together. And so we we say things sometimes when people are pushing back, they say things like, well, you know what, just trust God or just pray about it more or, you know, we're not a business. So why do we talk that way? You know, I've been involved in organizations that are deeply spiritual and led by the Spirit And they are the most intentional and brutally strategic organizations with goals and plans and clear objectives. And I pray that our church will always hold those two together. So here in Nehemiah's memoirs, we see that exactly happening. A deeply spiritual man filled with prayer, filled with brokenness, prayer and fasting, but also incredibly strategic, calling his people to a very powerful vision. It's important to remember that these were covenant people. These were old covenant people that were rediscovering the covenant of Moses. The covenant that had been established first with Abraham and then reaffirmed with Moses. And this conditional covenant that was there for them as they chose to obey or disobey. And how God's favor and God's presence with them was dependent on their obedience. And we see that throughout the Old Testament, which is why the prophets continually call these people back to God, which is why, in fact, they were eventually sent into exile because of their disobedience. And so they are reclaiming and rebuilding this covenant with God. And we'll see that as we get into the later chapters of Nehemiah, that that Nehemiah is doing this spiritual work, this rebuilding work of spiritual covenant work with the people. They were to bring the blessing of God to the nations of the earth. And they failed, and they rebelled from that over and over. They forgot who they were and what they were called for. But here's the really good news. As new covenant people, Jesus says, I have come to establish a new covenant. And this covenant I give to you is based on what he has accomplished on the cross. His body broken for you, his blood shed for you. That we can always have full access to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it's a covenant of faith, hope, and love. So Nehemiah was building a wall and he was rebuilding identity and rebuilding this covenant, but, but 
we too have this opportunity to engage with building in the kingdom of God in this new covenant of faith, hope, and love in remarkable ways. I said earlier to have faith is to be future-oriented, and to be future-oriented is to have hope. And so one of the questions that I've been thinking about and I have for us is this. Do you believe that your future is better than your past? Don't answer that out loud, but just think of that in your heart. Do you believe, really believe that your future is better than your past? And I would say, if you say no, then you're not believing Jesus. Because Jesus says, and we read in the New Testament, we are to have this idea and identity that we are made for eternity. And that there is an eternity in heaven beyond this life that we know right now that is better than anything we could ever imagine right now. We forget that. Do we really believe that our future is better than our past? Now take even eternity out of the picture for a minute and just look at our life right here, right now on earth. Do you believe that your future could be better than what you're experiencing right now? And I would say to you, the answer is yes, regardless of your circumstances, because if we believe that Jesus, who has given us his spirit, who lives within us, can redeem and renew all things, then whatever we're experiencing right now, even in this lifetime, can be renewed and restored and can be better. And that's part of having a future orientation. That's part of always understanding that we have a future call to always be looking forward, that that God always calls us forward. I see that throughout all of Scripture, is that God is always calling His people forward, not back. He says, remember back there, remember this. He calls them to remember back so that they have faith to move forward. That's the reason we're called to remember. Not to go back there, but to remember that God was faithful back there, so God will be faithful in your future. So don't ever doubt that God doesn't have better things for you in store in your future. And that is that future orientation that we need to have practical steps. And we can build into that. We can build that into our lives. We can take steps in that direction and do the building work that we're called to do. It looks a hundred different ways. It's going to a counselor because you're determined to have a future in this relationship. It's reaching out for accountability in your addictions because you believe that your future matters for you and your family. It's putting down roots in a community and resisting your desire to just isolate yourself and be alone because you know that God has something in store for you when you gather in community with other people. It's reading a book, taking a course, fasting and praying, joining a small group, restarting your time with God, whatever it takes. But whenever you do those steps, that's part of the building towards a future orientation which builds your hope. It says, I'm not going to just stay here. I'm not going to just trust that nothing will ever get better or change, but that God has something better in store for me. And that we can do that work. We can do our part as the Spirit of God works in us. Paul describes it in this way in Philippians 3, verse 13 and 14. And Paul says, But I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. There's that future orientation. Paul always had that future orientation. And he says, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus, is calling us. It's a forward-facing confidence. It's fueled by hope. And it begins by knowing this person of the new covenant, that we would lift our eyes and that we would see Jesus rather than the obstacles in our lives. If you look at 1 Peter 
chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, and I want to end with this, and I invite the worship team if they would come up. But Peter says this, You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones. Again, I love that imagery as we're talking about Nehemiah and the rubble around this wall. And Peter says, you are living stones. You have the Spirit of God living within you. You are alive. People of green hope. He says, you are living stones that God is building into His spiritual temple. And what's more, you are His holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. So my prayer for us is that we would be people who are intentional, who are strategic, who are visionary, and the way we, you might think you're not visionary, the way we become visionary is we lift our eyes from the circumstances in our life and we lift our eyes to see Jesus. Just like Paul did. And we keep our eyes on Him. And then we step out in faith and we do the part. Whatever part we're called to. That we feel inadequate, that we feel unworthy of, that we feel we don't have the skills or the gifts for. But as God invites us and calls us to build in the kingdom of God and to join Him in this work, that we would roll up our sleeves and do our part. Because when we do that, it shows that we have a future orientation and that we are building and believing in hope for what God has in store for us. Let's pray. So Lord, I just thank You for this incredible story that we can only touch on and only begin to understand. But Lord, even though this story has its primary applications and implications are for Nehemiah and these people, we, we can also draw this inspiration for us and, and to see how we as New Covenant people can build on this because we are building on You, the cornerstone. And so Lord, would You help us to see ourselves and to be the living stones that You've called us to be. And we commit ourselves to You again in that way and may by the power of Your Spirit You give us the desire and the power to do what pleases you in this regard. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.